0: Well, good evening. We'll try that again. Good evening. It's nice to see you all, and I know the kids are having a great time at Calvary Kids downstairs. I I ducked in there right before service and saw that that's really working out. We're really glad that some of you parents now have an opportunity to join us on Wednesdays, and uh, we figured this would be an all-around good way to do things. So keep that in prayer. Uh, we're fortunate to have three of our senior staff, pastoral level leaders down there, leading this entire ministry. So I'm very excited about that. Wish I could be a part of it, but I got to be up here. So open up your Bibles, if you will, with me to Second John, chapter one, verse one. We're starting a new series this evening in Second John, and uh, it'll probably take about Two services or two messages to get through this whole book. This evening I just sort of want to jump in, give an introduction, and get through the introduction of this book. But let's open in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. you. You always tell us what we need to hear. You always speak to our hearts, give us the words we need to receive. So I ask Heavenly Father that you would now, as you always do, speak to our hearts and show us your will for our lives Reveal our hearts to ourselves that we might ask you to change our hearts to be more like you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2 John. Now, of course, the writer of this epistle, this general epistle, is John, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And I usually spend an awful lot of time going through a background on the author, but just a few weeks ago when we started 1 John, I went through all of the details about how John was mentioned and referred to frequently in the Gospels and in the epistles. So if you want that background about John, I would say listen to the first series of studies in 1 John, and you'll get all that information, at least the very first study. But what I do want to do is give you a little background on the date, style, and subject of this epistle, because it is a different epistle. This letter was probably written from Ephesus, presumably toward toward the end of the first century, around 95 A.D. It was written by what we believe is an anonymous elder. That is, there's no name given. We don't know exactly who it was, but we know. It's pretty obvious that it's John. But it was written by an anonymous writer, an anonymous elder, generally accepted to be John the Apostle. Now, John appears to be writing a private letter to an individual woman who had children, a sister, and nieces. See, it's simply addressed from the elder to the chosen lady. Now, that's probably code. The elder to the chosen lady. Some some read instead of lady, the chosen kyria, which is in Greek. Or some read instead the chosen... Uh, Lady electa, because that would translate the Greek differently. But it closes with the words, the children of your chosen sister send their greetings. So I believe that this is clearly a code that John used, not necessarily actual people he's writing to. But there's some debate about that. It appears that the chosen lady is the personification of a specific church fellowship. Now, her children, the children of this lady... Would then represent the members of that fellowship. And the sister mentioned would be the sister church, and her children the members of that fellowship. So if you look at it like that, it really makes a lot of sense. This lady is addressed in the singular and in the plural, so that kind of gives it away. And Peter uses a similar phrase in his first epistle, so it's not unprecedented. Now, There is little doubt that all three of John's epistles are the work of one and the same author. The content of this second epistle makes it evident that it was written by the author of the first epistle. That much we know. The third epistle is linked with the second epistle by their salutation, the elder, and by its content. So you can debate who wrote all three, but there's no question about the same person writing all three, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Now, the epistle contains, this, is, this might be some, something uh, disappointing, but this epistle contains very little that is distinctive. By that, I mean of the 13 verses composing this letter or this epistle, check this out, seven are in John's first epistle. So think about that. It's kind of like okay. So there's 13 verses, and seven of them we just studied in the first epistle. That doesn't take away from the power and the impact of the epistle. It just goes to show you, though, that the same person wrote it. Having said that, it's worth repeating some of those verses because they're powerful thoughts, and we'll go through them this evening, and and into next week. Now, John's second and third epistles, and Philemon, the book of Philemon, which we studied, which was written by Paul are the only private apostolic letters in the New Testament. That is, they're, they're written to individuals, not to churches at large. Uh, again, notwithstanding, these letters may have been written to a large number of people coded as individuals. But the standard papyrus sheet of paper, or sheet of papyrus, measured 10 by 8, roughly the size of a piece of paper that we use today. And the length of both 2nd and 3rd John would each take up almost exactly one sheet, so, I'm guessing what happened is he wrote these letters and he stopped when he ran out of room. <laughs> but they're still valuable portions of God's word for all of us to study. There certainly must have been many other private letters written by John and others, but these are all that remain. So, we'll look at this this evening. Uh, the theme of this epistle is walk in the truth and in love. Walk in the truth and in love. Two very important principles for us to study as Christians. Truth and love. Now John reintroduces his favorite theme. Remember what that was? Love one another. Love one another. He talked about it in John 15. He talked about it in the first epistle. He also contends against the same sort of trouble as he did in the first epistle. You'll remember that he's warning them in the first epistle and in the second epistle against the Gnostic teachings, the heretics uh, named Basilides, Cerinthus, and their followers. So that's going to come up a little bit again as well. And he directs them to refuse, check this out, to refuse hospitality, which was a big deal, to refuse hospitality to anyone whose teaching contradicted God's word. Now we'll talk a little bit about that next week but hospitality was a big deal. You you didn't stop at a double tree or a locanta or something like that if you were going into a town. You were completely dependent upon the hospitality of others. And so if you were refused hospitality, you had to move on. You couldn't stay. And in the ancient world it was really 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 important to show hospitality. It still is today in the Middle East considered one of the most important virtues that you can show your guests, hospitality. So to refuse hospitality, which is talked about in this book, was a pretty severe step. You would have to be a, a true heretic in order for someone to simply not give you a place to stay. So we'll look at that. It's funny, when we get to third John, then he talks about giving hospitality to people or showing hospitality to people who are worthy of that hospitality. But we'll get to that in time. Okay, the letter itself, it's got 13 verses, as I mentioned, divided into four divisions, has a greeting and a closing. And the two sections we'll look at, one of which we'll look at tonight, is Walk in Truth and Love. And the next week, we'll look at the warning about deceivers. But this evening, we pick it up in verses 1 and 2. I want to read those two verses. And we see that in this greeting, we read, The elder, as I mentioned, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, or not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. And then he goes on to say this, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ the uh, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. And you see those two very important principles, truth and and love. Now John the Apostle is writing to, as I've said, a group of individuals within a specific church fellowship. That much seems pretty obvious to me. And he simply refers to himself as the elder without using the title of apostle. Now why would he do that? Well, Peter, Peter, referred to himself as an elder as well. And of course, elders are the pastors, the overseers, and the leaders in the church. Elder, in Greek, presbyterios, from where we get the term the Presbyterian denomination or church, elder simply means a person of age. And those that presided over the churches in the New Testament were elders, The appointing of elders was a practice borrowed from ancient Judaism, if you look at the book of Numbers. Rulers were usually selected by the people from the elderly men in ancient times. It was a very male-dominated society, and the elders or older men were typically given those positions of authority, given their experience, and given their age, and given the respect that they received. Now John, and this is why he refers to himself as the elder, John was the only living apostle of the original 12 at this time. He was over 90 years old and one of the last direct links with Jesus Christ. In the province of Asia, the elders were men who were direct disciples of the apostles. So when they, in the province of Asia, when they talked about elders... They were the ones that were the direct disciples of the apostles. But in this case, he was the elder of elders, given that he was the last living apostle, simply called the elder. So you know you're pretty old when you just refer to singularly as the elder. Now, the term elder certainly applied and would have no doubt immediately identified John to those who received this letter. In this letter, in this opening, if you noticed in verse 1, he lovingly refers to the church fellowship and its members as the chosen lady and her children. Now, why would he do that? Well, my guess is he may have been deliberately unclear in his addressing of this letter for reasons of safety. Remember, there was persecution taking place at this time. John himself was taken into custody, imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, There was persecution in those days, and especially within the early church. And so, more than likely, the code that he uses in this letter has to do with trying to protect the church and those members of the church from someone who might intercept this letter. It also in this letter, expresses, he expresses his love for them in Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Amen? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said in John's gospel, same John, chapter 14, verse 6. It's interesting that the word truth is used five times in the first four verses of this brief letter. I mean, there's only 13 verses, and he mentions it five times in four verses, truth. Now, can we just take a deep breath and realize that truth today is under siege? Forget about spiritual truth. Let's, not that we want to forget completely about it, but let's just put spiritual truth aside. Let's just say truth, like that the sky is blue, that grass is green, that there are two genders, male and female, You know, it's amazing. Someone said to me one time, and I shared this in in one of our services, and I talked about there being two genders, and one woman very politely came up to me. She was visiting, and she asked, she said, well, what about a person who identifies as another gender? And I said, well, there are people that can identify as whatever they want. I can identify as 26 years old. I'm still 56. So I think you have to realize you can identify as whatever you want. That doesn't change the truth. That there are two genders. Basic biological truth. Oh, that's so offensive, Pastor. How could you say that? Oh, my goodness, that's so hateful. It's the truth. It's the truth, right? So, you know, it's amazing today because when people, certain people, don't want to hear the truth, they label the truth as something hateful or, or say it isn't true. You know, it's amazing. I mean, people will get all wigged out, and you, but, but it's the truth. What, what, do, you, what do you want? Oh, I don't like that truth. I don't relate to that truth. So I'm going to make up my own truth, my alternative truth. I'm not the gender I was born with, or you know, it, it, it's there's so many, so many lies today. I could go down a litany of different things that we're being lied to about, but that's not my point. Our point this evening to study is the truth. So truth is under siege today. It starts with biblical truth, but it it doesn't end there. I mean, there are things we know are true, and some people are just so scared to say it. May we never be frightened to speak the truth in love. Remember, that's our theme here, walk in truth and love. If someone says to you, well, you know, Christ wasn't God, you have to speak up and say, well, you know, yes, he was. Well, you know, he didn't die on the cross. Well, uh, you know, yes, he did. Well, he didn't rise from the dead. Yes, he did. Well, he never said he was God. Yes, he did. Well, he never said he was coming again. Yes, he did. You see, you have to be willing to lovingly let people know the truth. Because people have been lied to so much about God, and sometimes by pastors, that we have to be committed to preaching the truth of God's word now and forevermore. If we're not committed to the truth, not just biblical truth, but all truth, we're going to live in a world we don't recognize. I already am not beginning to recognize the world we live in. You know, it's insane. But we have God's word. His word is truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Thank God we know the truth. Amen? Thank God. And we do. So as we talk about truth, let's make sure that we remember truth is both Jesus Christ and the truth about Jesus Christ. He's truth, but the truth of God's word is the truth about Jesus Christ. So anything that defies or contradicts that, well, that isn't the truth, is it? For example, God created them male and female. God created them. There you can use that pronoun, them, properly. So you see, truth has to be what comes from our mouths. Love needs to come from our hearts. And if we keep that in balance, well, we'll be exemplifying Christ. But remember what the world did to him. Don't be surprised when they treat you in the same way. Okay, let's continue. John shares the love that all Christians have for them in Jesus Christ as well. When he writes to them in the latter part of verse 1, he says, Whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. You see, because we know the truth, we love each other. You can only love in truth. And we know the truth, therefore, we can love. You can't love someone and lie to them. If you're lying to them, you're not loving them. So this is what John wants us to know. And he says, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, he's speaking of, again, Jesus, who is the truth, but also the truth about Jesus. And he shares that with them as well. Then, here in verse 2, he clarifies, Jesus is the truth that lives in us by faith and that he will be with us. (coughs) Excuse me. He will be with us for all eternity, and we will be with him. Amen? And that's a a wonderful truth. It is because of him that we are able to love other Christians. Think about that. If it weren't for him, you wouldn't. It is because of him that other Christians are able to love us. And of course, without him, they couldn't. And it is because of him that we will all spend eternity with him and with one another. So it's all about him. And in this next verse, verse 3, John greets this specific church fellowship on behalf of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And I'll read it again (coughs) when he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. What a wonderful greeting. The greetings of the epistles are really sweet because very much up front in these letters, the writer will share their, their heart. Uh, we write differently, don't we? We say, dear so-and-so, and then when we get to the end of the letter, we say, with love or sincerely or in him, blessings. We, we close our letters in our society, in our culture. We close our letters with our hearts. They would open their letters with their hearts. They close them that way, too. But so many times, you know, like when you get an email, it's kind of good because you, you see who it's from, Right. But when you write a handwritten letter, I mean, generally you have to check the return address to figure out who sent it to you. And if you just start reading the letter, you'll see it was written to you. But you have to go all the way down to the bottom, typically, unless it's a formal letter, uh, to see who wrote it. Not so in the letters of the New Testament, because they're written with a, a more of an Eastern mindset. So this is what we see. He states with promise that God's grace, mercy, and peace will be with them. And don't we need God's grace, mercy, and peace? And of course, God's grace must always precede his mercy and his peace. If you don't know God's grace, you won't receive God's mercy and you won't have God's peace. It starts with the grace of God, the love of God. And he also extended to them, like Paul, the common Greek greeting, which was grace, and the Jewish greeting that still exists today, peace or shalom. Grace and peace were Paul's trademark greeting that he used in every one of his epistles, Peter likewise used grace and peace in his greeting, and John adds mercy here to his greeting just as Paul did in his two letters to Timothy. So these were the common ways that people would write to one another and the things they would stress up front before opening their heart and sharing what God had laid on their hearts to share. But just notice when we close this verse 3 that the blessings of God are only available to us in truth and love. He's already made it clear to us that this truth is only found in Jesus Christ. And he will make it clear in verses 5 and 6 that this love is only found in Jesus Christ as well. So I guess what I'm saying to you is this. Don't use the truth as a weapon apart from love. Because, you see, knowing the truth and speaking the truth but not in love isn't acceptable. And don't be so loving that you're afraid to tell people the truth because it might challenge them or hurt their feelings. Paul gave us a great balance. Tell the truth in love. I have found when I do that, when I totally, lovingly tell people the truth, they have to respond to it differently than if I just blasted them with the truth. You know, I grew up, I'm Italian, I grew up in a culture where... You know, love was kind of under the surface of the truth. You know, if we thought you were stupid, we said, you know what your problem is? You're stupid. That's not very loving, is it? It might be true, but it's not very loving, you know? And then, you know, sometimes, and we've all fallen into this, we love someone so much, and this is the other extreme, I don't really want to tell them the truth that that hat looks horrible on them, that that shirt looks terrible on them. I don't, I, I don't want to tell them. I love them too much to tell them the truth. See, that would be bad too. So how do we strike that balance? Well, this is what John is going to talk to us a little bit about in this epistle. How do we tell the truth in love? Well, we have to walk in truth in love. If we walk in truth in love, then the things we say and the way we say them will be truthful and loving. Okay, now we're just going to look this, this evening at the uh, next three verses, four, five, and six. And we'll pick up the rest of it next week. The theme is walking truth and love. And this is what we read in verse four. It has given me great joy, John writes, to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. It shouldn't sound original to you because it's the same themes that John stressed in his gospel and even in our recent study in 1 John. Brothers and sisters, John was filled with joy. What made him feel so joyful? What what is it that made him filled with joy? It was because he had seen he had witnessed certain members of their fellowship living in the truth aren't you blessed when you find out somebody's actually living according to God's word it's sad but you know when you find out someone you love is not living according to the truth that is they they're saying one thing and doing another it breaks your heart a little bit doesn't it it's different if they come to you and they say, brother, pray for me. I'm struggling with alcohol. I'm struggling with anger. I'm, I'm struggling with drugs. I'm struggling with lust. If they come to you and they share those things, it's, it's a little different than if you kind of just find out. Like you're in the supermarket and you hear somebody screaming. You're like, what is going on? And you go down the meat aisle and you turn left and then you go down the dairy aisle and you see Pastor Tim screaming at somebody. That would be a little disappointing, wouldn't it? I would think so. It could probably happen if I was in the flesh, but you, I'd be disappointed if, if one of you guys were in that similar situation, because it would mean that you're not walking in truth. It, you know, it would mean that you're saying one thing, and then when you get the opportunity to blast somebody, you go for it publicly like that. I mean, John had seen the opposite. He had actually seen these individuals living according to God's Word, and it blessed him. In fact, it filled him with joy. Now, it doesn't imply that some of them were not living in the truth. It just simply means that he was aware that some were, and that blessed him and filled him with joy because he had seen and witnessed certain members of their fellowship living in the truth. Now, he's also already clarified that to walk in the truth is to live in Jesus Christ, who is the truth. So if people look at your life and they say, hey, you know who you remind me of? Jesus. You're walking in the truth. Now, not that someone's going to say, hey, you walk on water. You know? no, it's not that. It's a, they're going to see something about your life that reminds them of Jesus, what, what the Bible says about Jesus. Not that you are Jesus or that you can compare to him. They're going to see things in your life that that reveal the love of God and the truth of God. Y- you are a living epistle, as Paul said, Seen and read of all men. People are reading you the way we read the Bible, you know, and they need to see God. They need to see Jesus. That's, in essence, what John is telling us. Now, this is the command that was given to us by the Father, to walk in truth. And to walk in obedience to this command is to acknowledge Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. If you're following God faithfully, you're obeying God's word doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're following God faithfully according to his word. And that's all John is encouraging us to think about and to do. Now, John's primary purpose in writing this brief letter was to encourage them to love one another. That seems to be John's greatest theme. You know, it's interesting because this is like, okay, the end of the first century. So it's been about 70 years or close to it since Jesus died and rose again, let's say, roughly. It's a long time. What was it that the church was, was struggling with, apparently? Love. It's interesting, they weren't struggling as, as much with truth as they were with love. In fact, when, when, when Jesus speaks and reveals the vision of the revelation to John, and he writes the letter to the church at Ephesus, which is where John was when he wrote these letters, he says, I have this one thing against you. You've lost your first love. That would be love for God. If you lose your first love for God, the very next thing that follows is you won't love one another. So we can turn that around and say, if you're not loving towards others, that reveals that you've lost your first love. So one of the ways you'll know that you love God is you love your brother. So it's very simple. Are you loving toward other people? Because that would reveal your heart. That would reveal that you truly are loving God. Very simple. These are very simple truths, but they're profound. They're impactful. And you know, John's primary purpose was writing this just to encourage them. Love one another. He tells them what he told them in 1 John 2, verses 7 and 8. Love is an old command in principle and yet a new command by experience. An old command in principle, yet a new command by experience. Love is an old command. Of course it is. Because it's familiar, it's fundamental to all Christians. Brothers and sisters, this command was contained in the Mosaic Law. Going back to Leviticus, it's not a new command to love one another. This command to love your neighbor as yourself, where did that come from? The Old Covenant, the law, the very first books of the Bible, Leviticus 19.18. This command was exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ, but it was an old command. But it's also a new command. Why is it a new command and an old command, as John says here and also in 1 John? Because while it was an old command, it's a new command because it's fresh and alive to those in fellowship with Christ, filled with the Spirit. Now you're empowered to actually do it, to love one another. The, the truth of this new command is seen in the life of Christ, and now it's seen in us. And the light of this new command is seen in the life of Christ and now seen in us as well. So that's why he writes it the way he does here, when he says, I, do, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And he goes on to say, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. And that would be toward other people. Isn't it really difficult to love others? Be honest. Even the people you love the most, you want to kill sometimes, right? I don't really mean kill, although maybe. You know, like, you, you know, you get angry and passionately angry with people you really love, right? Why is that? Because you love them that much. The feelings run strong. It's difficult. It's challenging. Let's be honest. To follow God's word and to love those we love the most. Now, how about the ones you don't like? You know, I mean... It is a challenging thing to love one another. And at the end of this first century, John's greatest concern was that the church would continue to love one another. Now, yes, we need the truth, but never at the expense of love. Never at the expense of love. We know that God is love, amen? And that this love comes from him. And those that love do know God and are his children. We've learned that already. And those that do not love... Do not know God, nor are they his children. So, as we're in this book in particular, we're going to focus on love and making sure we live lives of love. You see, as it says in verse 6, love for God and obedience to God's will are synonymous. So, if you're disobeying God, you can't say you're loving. That's the point. If you disobey God's word, you can't say, oh, I'm loving. I accept people who are sinning against God. How loving I am. It doesn't work that way because you're not loving in truth. Oh, I don't want to tell my brother or my sister that homosexuality is a sin because that wouldn't be loving. That would be hateful. No, 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 no to lovingly tell someone that their actions and their behavior are sin before God is the most loving thing you can do, but you got to do it from a sincere heart and you have to be obeying God's word in order to do it. Can't be a hypocrite. Can't be a hypocrite. To walk in love, brothers and sisters, is to live in Christ who is love through obedience to the truth, to love one another, to walk in truth Remember, we're walking in truth and love. To walk in truth is to live in Christ who is the truth through loving obedience to the truth. None of this should confuse you. None of this should be beyond your understanding. But everything we've dealt with right now is going to take a lifetime to apply. There's nothing I share this evening that's easy, easy to understand, very challenging to implement and to apply. So what do we do? Well, as I ask Anthony to come up to close out the service, I I want you to know that we're going to ask God, as we worship in our hearts, to just make us like Jesus. Because in making us like Jesus, we'll live in truth and in love. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of scripture and how you have spoken to our hearts this evening. Lord, we want to live in truth and love. We want to honestly be the people you've called us to be, the people we claim to be, and we want to love others as we love ourselves, as you love us. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.